Let us open our Bibles congregation to our scripture reading for this afternoon. First, turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading from verse 14 to verse 17. Paul, in the midst of exhorting God's people there very much with the glory and the joy of being in heaven, being clothed with immortality and with righteousness of Christ, and yet urging God's people onward then to live a life of unselfishness and of the true spirit of conversion unto him. Second Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 17. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We focus especially on verse 17 and 15 there. And then we turn to chapter 7, reading the verses 6 through 10. There we focus on verse 9 and 10. Reading at verse 6 of chapter 7, Paul writes, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And then we flip back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 51. We read the first 13 verses. The Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. The title we have there at the beginning of Psalm 51. The first uh, 13 verses of God's holy word. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your transgressions, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. The bones you have broken may rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So far from God's holy word. And then also please turn with me to the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 33. Continuing where your pastor left off several weeks ago. He concluded with Lord's Day 32. And we will examine this afternoon the first three questions of Lord's Day 33. Dealing with a true conversion and, re- and repentance. <clears throat> Lord's Day 33, uh, question 88. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and to flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory, and not those based upon our own opinion or upon the precepts of men. And again, we'll be focusing on those first three questions and leave the last for another sermon. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if Christianity doesn't really make a difference in a person's life, If Christianity doesn't really change you, then it's really no better than any other kind of religion. Every other religion might aspire you to try to become a better person, but it'll never never make you a new person. That is what we will be focusing upon this afternoon. How coming to faith in Jesus Christ brings a radical change in a person's life. We already see the, the hint of that back in Lord's Day 32 where question 86 uh, answers because Christ has redeemed us by his blood, he also renews us by the Holy Spirit. He renews us, we become a brand new person in Jesus Christ, redeemed by his blood, renewed by his spirit. We're dealing this afternoon with a very powerful effect of the grace of God. And so 33 of the Catechism introduces us to that subject of true repentance or true conversion, and we find out what that looks like and how we are therefore able to please God with doing all kinds of good works. Conversion, congregation, produces a life of gratitude to God. And that's the third section of the Catechism we are in here, that life of gratitude. And we demonstrate, perhaps most obviously and most consistently, at least we ought to, by the very fact that we are every day turning away from our sins and we are rejoicing in Christ our Savior who has redeemed us from our sins. 
Our theme this afternoon, true conversion, is the dying of the old self and the coming to life of the new. Receiving the catechism's teaching here, we note, first of all, the, the fact that uh, we experience a true conversion, and secondly, we look at the two aspects of that conversion. Question 88 asks, uh, what is true repentance and conversion? It says it is the dying of the old nature and it is the coming of the new nature. But notice there, the verbs are both in the present tense. It's the dying of something and it's the coming to life of something else. Present tense, it's, a, it's an ongoing phenomena or activity that we experience when we experience that true conversion and that, uh, and that true repentance. Now, of course, the Bible teaches us that to be born again is an event that we experience at one moment in our life when we indeed are born again. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. That never has to be repeated uh, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And in, the, in that situation, we're entirely passive and we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also speaks of the ongoing effect of that regeneration as well. That is something that never leaves us, but that which we actually continue to experience all our life long. And that is what we have going on here in Lord's Day 33. Although not to the exclusion of that reality of being born again first off when we first are born again. Notice the Apostle Paul's words, though, to give us uh, understanding and to help us uh, get a handle on what the Catechism here is teaching. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There is a newness that a Christian has that every unbeliever does not have. He does not have a dying of the old nature. He does not have a coming to life of the new nature because he's never a new creation in the first place. Where we, by God's grace, who believe on the Lord Jesus, we are a new creation. And yet that does not mean that we cease from sin. Because as the answer to 88 tells us, there is this continual dying. That means that sin is still there. It doesn't control us, but it is in that process of dying away. At the same time, a simultaneous coming to life of the new nature. And that, na that nature is new because it is so fundamentally different from the old nature. There's something very radical, radically new about a Christian that the unbeliever doesn't have. The unbeliever is still dead in his own sin. You are not by God's grace. He is still enslaved to all his sinful desires and passions. You are not. You are fighting against your sinful desires. Though sometimes you don't do as good a job of that as others, but still you are fighting against that sin. And you know it's not right. And you really want to separate yourself from that more and more. That's that dying process of the old nature. In that sense, Paul says, 
uh, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Christian has a new manner of thinking and of living, not for himself anymore, but now God is very much a part of his life and part of the whole equation of how he does everything and the motive and the purpose for which he lives. God is at the center, the unbeliever not at all. He's still involved with the old things. He can only see as far as himself, and that's all he lives for. The unbeliever continues to deny that God even exists. But you don't, because you are a new creation. Behold, all things are becoming new in your life. We experience the kind of thing that Paul encourages the Corinthians in back in verse 15 of chapter 5 where he says, and he died for all, eh? namely Jesus, he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Perhaps one of the best ways of describing the unbeliever who is still full of all the old things that have not passed away in his life is the fact that he is living only for himself. That sums up an unbeliever perhaps better than anything else. He lives for himself. And he's not going to change that because he loves that kind of lifestyle. But not you, congregation, who are a new creation. You are living no longer for yourselves, Paul says, but for him who died for you and rose again. That's a whole new orientation, isn't it? That's something radically different from your unbelieving neighbor. You have become, as Paul says, a a new creation. Something that you were not before. Compared to the unbeliever, you have a new orientation in your life. It begins with simply the fact you know God. You know God. And you want to please Him. You could add to that, you also love the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross for your sins. And now, guess what? You really want to serve him. You begin your day praying to your holy triune God. The unbeliever wouldn't think of it, not in a million years. But you do. There's a coming to life of something new. The unbeliever does not know God His orientation is still to himself. His orientation is still to his money and to all the pleasures he can get out of this life while 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 he lives and to please himself. He can't worship God at all. That's the last thing he'd ever want to do is set foot inside a church and bow down before the Most High God. Why do you? You're a new creation. There's a coming to life in you this reality of knowing you live before the face of the Most High God. And you do so because you know Christ is your Savior by whom you were born again. The very fact that you worship God is a demonstration of you experiencing conversion to repentance. It sets you radically apart from all unbelievers. Again, the answer and the question of 88, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? It's the dying 
of the old nature. It is the coming to life of the new. You have a whole new reason for living. You have a whole new set of God's law that you want to be ruled by. You've been given a new obedience to do the Lord's will. You're part of a brand new community called the church. And very happily, you find your spiritual home there. The unbeliever does not understand these things. He does not want these things. You have a brand new comfort in your heart because you know you have an eternal inheritance set in store for you in the heavens. The unbeliever doesn't know what you're talking about when you would speak of such things. You have a whole new joy in your soul because you are united to Christ. You have a peace with God that the unbeliever shakes his head at and says, I don't know what you're even talking about. He's still involved in the old things that have never passed away out of his life yet. But Paul says of us, we are a new creation. The old things have passed away in us. The unbeliever, on the other hand, keeps serving himself. He keeps loving his sin. He's got no interest in God. He's got no interest in the church. He doesn't know what truth is, and he couldn't care less about it. He does not know what salvation is or means, nor does he desire any part of it. But by God's grace, we are experiencing true repentance and this new con- and, and, this, and this conversion. We know it's not just something happening out there that we can kind of sit and watch. No, it involves our whole life and being, our, ha- our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our motives, our whole life. As we experience this coming to life of the old and this dying away. Uh, coming to life of the new and the dying away of the old. Well, we need to see secondly, looking a bit more carefully, what does our experience of that true conversion actually consist of? Question 89 asks the question, what is the dying of the old? Question 90 says, what is the coming to life of the new? Two things that happen simultaneously and they, and they complement each other. What are they? Both of these things are happening at the same time. They, they must be together. Well, the dying of the old means to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and to flee from it. And the coming to life of the new is to have a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Notice how these go hand in hand. The one simply cannot be without the other. The first aspect of true conversion is, as question 89 says, it is to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and to flee from it. The older version of the Catechism says it is a heartfelt sorrow that we have provoked God by our sin. Now when we use that word sorry or sorrow, it is simply being sorrowful for our sin. All these three words come from the same root in in the Greek language. Sorry, sorrowful, and sorrow. 
When you sin against God, when you steal, when you blaspheme his name, when you give a big mouth back to your parents, when you cheat, when you offend your neighbor, a true believer will have a heartfelt sorrow. He will know there's something there he did which was deeply wrong and he's going to regret it. It's going to make him feel miserable, maybe not right away, but he will soon wish he had never done so. It will bring a sense of shame, of guilt, of sadness, even grief and tears. The believer will come to the realization that he has offended God and that he offended his neighbor, whether it was his best friend, the kid in school that he didn't like one bit, he hated his guts, whether it was your spouse or whoever, there'll be the realization that we have offended that person. And being born again, we will confess our sin to be absolved of our guilty conscience. But let's say perhaps you didn't quite realize you had sinned and you really felt it wasn't that serious of a sin. Nevertheless, being a true believer, that guilty conscience will finally get you and you will come to the realization by God's grace, I have offended my God, I have hurt my brother, I have offended my neighbor, and uh, I will finally no longer pretend my sin was no big deal, I cannot hide it, but I will confess my sin. Or another scenario, let's say you have sinned and you try to hide it and pretend it was no big deal. We think of David with Bathsheba. Finally, Nathan had to point him out and correct him. If you are a true child of God, if you've experienced that true conversion and someone tells you of your sin, you will finally humble yourself and acknowledge your sin before God and you will confess and you will have a heartfelt sorrow, the catechism says, because you will come under the realization you've offended God. And you realize you need to hate that sin more and more and to flee from it. That's how a true conversion works itself out in your life. You weren't on the sidelines watching this. No, you were actively involved in this true repentance and, and, this, and this conversion you indeed will turn to God and say, Lord, I have sinned. There will be a godly sorrow within you that, uh, that comes out. And this is what we see Paul instructing the Corinthians in, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. He says, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow, or being godly sorry, same thing, produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but very much wanted and needed. But the sorrow of the world, Paul says, that produces death. Sorrow of the world means all the sorrow and the misery that unbelievers suffer. And let me tell you, they suffer the misery and the consequences of sin too. 
They suffer the horrible effects of sin, especially when they get caught and they, and they realize the misery that they're in. They realize the damage they've done to others and to themselves, but they don't repent. Why? Because they, God know, they have no godly sorrow. They are not sorrowful. There's no heartfelt sorrow in their, in their hearts knowing that they have offended God. Why? Because they've rejected God all their life long in the first place. They want nothing to do with anything remotely looking like a godly sorrow that they've offended God. But what is godly sorrow? It's a realization we live before the face of the Most High God and He is a holy moral God and He's going to deal with us when we offend Him. He's holy and He's just. And he wants his people to live righteously according to his will, especially the fact that they have been born again. What does godly sorrow look like, of which the Catechism speaks in question 89? Well, what better place but Psalm 51? Listen to David's words, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That's godly sorrow. He says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That's godly sorrow. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. He's under that conviction of being sorrowful in a godly way. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. That's godly sorrow. David is right where he's supposed to be before God's throne, confessing. And in that way, he's experiencing true repentance. He's experiencing conversion by what he says, by what he prays and how he acts. Our conversion is to be experienced in our lives. Otherwise, what are our lives if we claim to be Christian and we never experience these things? He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's godly sorrow. That's exactly where God wants us to be when we have offended him or our neighbor. Oh, how in these words we can read between the lines and we can see David must have hated his sin when, when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, how he must have been repulsed by what he had done and how he wanted to have run away from that sin and wished it never would have happened. But he confessed and he repented He experienced a godly sorrow, heartfelt sorrow of question eight with regard to the dying of the old nature. Congregation, does that describe you? Godly sorrow. I pray you're not too proud or too stubborn to confess your sin when you've wronged your wife, your spouse, your husband, your friend. I trust you hate your sin. I'll be the first to admit it's a hard, hard thing to do, to hate our sin. And then, as the Catechism says, to flee, to run, to move away from our sin. 
And then to say perhaps the hardest words in the English language, I am sorry for my sin. I have offended you, O God in heaven. I have a heartfelt sorrow that I hurt my brother so much, or I cursed my neighbor, or I lied to that person in order to save my own skin again. O God, blot out my transgressions and cleanse me of all my sin. Such words go against our human nature, don't they? They they really do. But when we are born again and we experience that conversion of that new life, then these words we are able to say and mean them and practice them by true repentance, turning from those sins that otherwise would have destroyed us. But God was gracious to bring us to our senses like that prodigal son. He came to his senses. He said, Father in heaven, I've sinned against you and against God. And that's the experience of true conversion. Two aspects to it. The first was the dying of the old nature. And now lastly, there's that second aspect of true conversion. Question 90, what is the coming to life of the new nature? It's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. As a Christians, as those who are experiencing true repentance, we have a spiritual joy that the unbeliever knows nothing about. His heart does not sing in the least. And yet we can sing, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We can sing Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 and Psalm 25 and all those psalms that convict us and in which we see God's grace cutting at our sin and filling us with the promises of His, of His forgiveness. The unbeliever keeps rejecting God and hating God, but we can actually sing to God. We can rejoice in His salvation. We can have that heartfelt God, heartfelt joy in God through Christ. We love Him. We love Him who died for us. And therefore, it's our delight now to live according to the will of God in all good works. I trust you all know something of the joy of forgiveness. Perhaps there's nothing sweeter to obtain in this life but to have someone say to you, I forgive you. And then it's all over. The fight's all gone. There's no more grudges. I forgive you. I forgive you. We're restored to fellowship. That load of guilt is gone. That sense of condemnation has been removed that road to hell that we would otherwise be on if we'd never confessed our sin, we're off that road. We're on that heaven-bound road. We are enjoying that joy, that heartfelt joy of God through Christ, of being forgiven. What a delight to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to be forgiven. That's the thing David also speaks of in Psalm 51. Let me tell you, he was down in the pit. He was down in the dumps when that Nathan came after him and he realized what he had done. 
He cries out in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. David knew that that godly Christian life was a life of joy, but he'd lost that joy. He says, Now, O Lord, restore to me that joy of your salvation. And back in verse 8, he says, Make me hear joy and gladness. He hadn't been hearing that for quite a while. Make me hear that joy and gladness again. And that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Boy, didn't David say it right? He was crushed by God. The weight of his sin and his guilt. But he was mended. The bones that you have broken, may they rejoice again. Though the catechism was written many, many centuries after David, yet David understood the words of the catechism. The coming to life of the new nature is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ. It's a love and a delight of being forgiven, being reconciled to God, reconciled with your neighbor. To have that sweet experience, eh? Our Christian life, our conversion, our true repentance is to be experienced, that we have that experience of that joy and that gladness that comes with repentance. And then one little last thing, there's two aspects to this, to this as question 90 is also a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And isn't this so sensible and so necessary if we delight in our Lord Jesus Christ by whose blood we are shed, if we delight in God our Father who has chosen us in eternity, and we delight in the Holy Spirit by whom we are born again, will we not then delight in their holy law to keep that law too? As much as we delight in Jesus, we delight in the law of the Lord Jesus. He who loves me keeps my commandments, he says in John 14, 15. And so the catechism has it so right as it answers here with regard to the coming to life of the new that it's got to be also living according to the will of God in all good works. Again, the unbeliever, by contrast, he doesn't even know what good works are. We know they are, as the catechism says, done out of true faith, according to the law of God, and for his glory. Why would the unbeliever ever do anything that even looked like a good work? He would do nothing out of faith in God. He would do nothing according to the will of God's law. He would certainly do nothing according to God's glory. So no matter what he does, it's not a good work. It's not done out of faith for his glory according to his holy Ten Commandments. He ignores God. But we're different. By God's grace. Guess what? A new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. All things have become new in your life. Something you really experience. Not something you kind of watch on TV or read about. This is your experience of your Christianity, of your conversion of your true repentance. You have a love and a delight to live according to God in all good works. And I submit to you by the power of God's grace and spirit 
we can begin to live according to God's holy law. Yes, of course, we're going to fall short. Big time, we fall short sometimes. That's why at the end of the day, we get on our knees and we confess our sin before God and we can get cleaned up again because we have the promise of His forgiveness of all our sins. We experience this coming to life of the new man, loving, delighting, and doing all good works as is pleasing to God. May He bless you all very much with the Holy Spirit to enable you to be such men, such women, such boys and girls who are born again, who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly God and Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you are a loving God, that you are so patient with us, that you give us time and time again to repent of our sin. And then, O Lord, you draw us near to yourself again as only you, our Heavenly Father, possibly could. O Lord in heaven, fill us much with your grace. We pray, O Lord, especially for those who are struggling with the effects of sin in their own lives, who've been hurt very badly by others and who grieve and who mourn, others who might be burdened with a crushing load of of guilt, O Lord, that you will also comfort them. You will show them the way back to yourself that it is by true repentance and humble confession being of a contrite spirit, being lowly and meek. And then, O Lord, they may too, we pray, experience the powerful work of your redeeming love. And so, Father, bless us and build us up in our most holy faith as we live righteously, penitently, humbly, confessing our sins and receiving that forgiveness and that joy that we only can have in Jesus Christ. Amen.